And now I wonder if we could turn in our Bibles tonight to the book of Deuteronomy and to the chapter 32 of the portion of Scripture. And we're going to read from verse 15 of the chapter, uh, book of uh, Deuteronomy, chapter 32, and beginning our reading at the 15th verse of the chapter. But Jeshurun waxed fat and kicked, thou art waxen fat, thou art grown thick, thou art covered with fatness. Then he forsook God, which made him, and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations, provoked they him to anger. They sacrificed unto devils, not to God, to gods whom they knew not, to new gods that came newly up, whom your fathers feared not. Of the rock that begat thee, thou art unmindful, and hast forgotten God that formed thee. And when the Lord saw it, he abhorred them because of the provoking of his sons and of his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a very froward generation, children in whom is no faith. They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities, and I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled in mine anger, and shall burn unto the lowest hell, and shall consume the earth with her increase, and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap mischiefs upon them, I will spend mine arrows upon them. They shall be burned with hunger and devoured with burning heat. And with bitter destruction, I will also send the teeth of beasts upon them and the poisonous serpents of the dust. The sword without and terror within shall destroy both the young man and the virgin, the suckling also with the man of gray hairs. I said I would scatter them into corners I would make the remembrance of them to cease from among men, were it not that I feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should behave themselves strangely, and lest they should say, Our hand is high, and the Lord hath not done all this. For they are a nation void of counsel, neither is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. How should one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight, except their rock had sold them and the Lord had shut them up? For their rock is not, our, not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah, their grapes are grapes of gall, their clusters are bitter, their wine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asp. Is not this laid up in store with me and sealed up among my treasures? To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. For the Lord shall judge his people and repent himself for his servants, 
when he seeth that their power is gone, and there is none shut up or left. And he shall say, Where are their gods, their rock, in whom they trusted? Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word to all of our hearts. My text tonight is verse 31, where it says, For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. Amen. We know the Lord will bless his word. Let's unite in prayer. Our loving God and our gracious Father in heaven, we thank thee for the opportunity of meeting with thee tonight. We thank thee for the rock on which we are built tonight, those that are saved. We thank thee that we're built on solid ground, and we thank thee we have a firm foundation. And we pray that each one tonight may come to know that uh, great solid basis for all of their existence, and that they might uh, be built upon an eternal foundation that will never be swept away. So, Lord, come and bless as we gather round thy word tonight and shut us in with thyself. For it's in Jesus' precious name that we'd ask these things. Amen. Amen. Now, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32 here is some of the last words of Moses to the children of Israel. And he comes with a solemn warning to them. And he um, speaks here, really, it's like a song. It is a song. It has been called the Song of Moses. And it is a poem of singular beauty. And it has been regarded as a specimen of almost every species of excellence in composition. And it opens up with the servant of the Lord here invoking the heavens and the earth. He says, Give here, O ye heavens, and I will speak here, O earth, the words of my mouth. And really what he's doing here is seeking to underline the solemnity and the importance of what he is going to say. And then he goes on to ascribe greatness to his God. He says in the uh, verse there, he says, Ascribe ye, uh, verse 3, Ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is he. And you'll notice on down through what we even read there, how that the Lord is often referred to as a rock. In verse 15, it says that they lightly esteem the rock of his salvation. And then you go on into the portion of Scripture, and we have the Lord spoken of in verse 31 as the rock. You'll notice the word rock there is in capital letters, and there you have the uh, intimation of the fact that the word rock there refers to the God of heaven, the God who has brought them out. And he says, Ascribe ye greatness unto our God, he is our rock. His work is perfect. And he says, As an eagle stirreth up the nest, fluttereth over her young, spread the broader wings, taketh them, beareth them on her wings. So the Lord alone did lead him, and there is no strange God with him. And you have the picture of God bringing his people on his wings out of the bondage of Egypt and into the place of liberty. He says, I kill and I make alive. I wound, 
and I heal. And so this is the God of sovereignty, the God of life and death, and the God who is able to do mighty things. But in the text of Scripture, I want you to see how the, the uh, Lord uh, and Moses through the, uh, the Lord turns round and he says, For their rock is not as our rock. And he's referring there really to the gods of the heathen, the idols of the heathen. And he says, Their rock is not as our rock. And then he says, Even our enemies themselves being judges. And he's really saying that this is a settled thing now. That the Lord has overcome the enemies. The Lord has put down the idols and the nations that were uh, uh, involved in idolatry. And that has happened so comprehensively and completely and so many times that it is now to be accepted that the God of Israel is the living and the true God. And he says their rock is not our rock. They, their gods, the heathen gods uh, that they have been relying upon, they're useless. They are uh, things of a figment of the imagination. But he says, our rock is the one that has brought us out. Our rock is the one who kills and makes alive. And they, he says, even the heathen now have come to the point where they recognize that our God is Lord over their gods. But you know, in this day, that battle has not come to an end. We see here that in the day of Moses, they even had been brought to recognize that all of their idols and all of their false gods were as nothing. But man is nothing if not ingenious. And man will raise up all sorts of things to worship and to serve. Men mightn't worship and serve the gods of the idols that they did in days gone by in some places in the world they still do. But in the West today, we have other gods. There is the god of science or scientism. It's not really science that people are going by today. The facts are the facts. What the experiments bring up, they bring up. Facts are facts. The facts of science, the facts of the universe are facts no matter what may, we may say or what way we might interpret them. But the thing is that men today have come with a veil of materialism. And only the material world exists as far as man is concerned. And anything beyond what we can experience, anything beyond our senses in man's eyes or in the eyes of many people doesn't exist. And so they dismiss the supernatural, they dismiss the spiritual, they dismiss anything beyond, and instead of looking at what really interprets the facts aright, man just comes with his eyes blinkered, and there is that blinkered vision that people have today, and they're looking to man and looking to science and the interpretation of science, and yet uh, their scientism doesn't really satisfy their hearts. Another thing that people will look to today is public opinion. People order their lives according to the fashions and the campaigns of the day, whether it's climate change or whether black lives matter or whatever particular fashion it may be. People will order their lives according to those things. 
And really what man puts at the center is what he really always has put at the center, and that's man himself. When men were worshiping by means of idols, really what they were doing was bringing in their own attributes and bringing in their own thoughts and their own propensities, and they were worshiping man in the figure of these idols that they were uh, bringing, uh, uh, that they were manufacturing. But we think of with man, with all his discoveries, and with all man's rights and all the rest of it, and all of the university professors and the senior politicians, all on this agenda, it still does not meet the need of the hearts of men and women. There is something missing. And we can say tonight, their rock is not our rock. And our enemies themselves being judges. And what I want to do this evening is show you the universal truth that the experience of godless men proves the futility of their objects of trust. What they're trusting, maybe what you're trusting in tonight is not going to meet the need of your heart. Your rock is not our rock, but our rock is the one that you need to lean upon. Our rock is the solid foundation that you need for your life tonight. And so what we want to do is to think about the contrast. And of course, where it speaks about the rock here, it's speaking about their gods and our God. And we want to draw the contrast here that Moses is drawing in this portion of Scripture And first of all then, I want us to think about the reality of our rock. You see, the greatest difference between our rock and the rock here of the heathen, or the rock that men and women are relying upon for their foundation of their life, is that their rock has no real solid foundation. Their rock is shifting sands. Someone once asked why they thought Christianity was true, And he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And he meant by that, that when you have the right view of things, things suddenly become crystal clear. The hymn writer said, something lives in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. And we think of the psalmist when he looked at the heavens and the earth. He said, when I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? And he was filled with wonder with the Creator. And he was filled with wonder at what he had seen, all of these things, these intricacies, and all of the lights that were shining in the universe. And he was filled with wonder at the, the one who had created all things. But you know, man's eyes are blind today and he can't see. The Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And there are things that science and man understanding of reality would say are at odds with Christianity. But when you really get to know what the Bible says, you can see, you get a crystal clear glass you, you get a pair of spectacles that begin to unfold things as they've never seen before. And when you look at nature, 
I want you to think about the explanation of the universe. You know, we thought of how man in the past thought that the universe was eternal. And it just went on and on. It's the only explanation he could have. Because otherwise the universe has a beginning. And how does the beginning happen? That's the problem that he had. And so man, because he couldn't accept a God, said uh, that the universe is eternal. Now science has looked at it with closer eyes and they cannot deny it anymore. They have to say that the universe had a time when it began, a moment when the universe came into being. Now they explain it by the Big Bang and by Redshift and by all of these things. But nevertheless, there is an acceptance now that the universe had a beginning. And if it had a beginning, it had to have a beginner. Somewhere along the line, no matter how far you go back, there is a beginner. There is something that began. It just, it, otherwise, you are believing in everything has come out of nothing. Now, it did come out of nothing in this fact, but there was a God who brought it out of nothing. There was something there. Look around you at the animals and the flowers. Look at the plants and the trees. Everything in nature has a purpose. Everything is intricately meshed together. If you remove one animal from nature and from the food chain, it disrupts everything else or something else in the food chain. And you think about the flowers, and many of them, in many ways, have no purpose in, in that sense. You can't eat them in that sense. But they are there for beauty. Now, if they are there for beauty, what put them there? If, if they are just there for beauty, why are they there? And you think about it, and you, when you begin to look at things with the eyes of faith, your eyes are reset and you begin to wonder, why, why can people not see that there is a designer? You think of the complexity of life and birth. You think of how it brings together two beings and they create another being. And there are 8 billion people in this world at the present time. And even tw with twins, they sh share the same genetic components, but they don't have the same, they don't have the same uh, fingerprint. And everybody is unique. And there is that unique design. Is God real? Yes, God is real. You think of the human brain. And we think of the human brain processes and is able to handle the information of a thousand supercomputers. It weighs 1350 grams. And yet you think of the mighty computing power that the brain is able to do and the brain wave patterns and they're still trying in some way to replicate it. But my, it is still bringing out surprising and astonishing surprises. It's like DNA. Man thought that when he had uh, traced DNA, he would be able to uh, unravel the whole of the genetic code. But what did they find? they found that DNA was more complex than they thought. Indeed, DNA is a language. It's a word. And in the beginning was the word. It's a word. All the way that we are made up of, we are made up of words. And doesn't the Bible say that in the beginning, 
was the Word. And you can see in all of the, you think of the origin of sin or the seven-day week. Why do we have a seven-day week? How come we, how come that people agreed from the very beginning that we would have a seven-day week? Where did that come out of? The communists tried to turn it into a five-day week or a ten-day week. And they soon found that they weren't able to do it because we are designed for a seven-day. Where does that come out of? You see, when you look at things through the eyes of faith, we can see that there is a God. Not only is there natural revelation, but there is special revelation. We have the Bible, and then we come to something even more wonderful. You think of the 40 unrelated authors who wrote over 2,000 years, and they brought about a book with a plan of salvation and which uh, jails together with one voice, with one message, with one uh, desire. And the, uh, the, the, uh, an author wrote, uh, his name was Tim Chaffee, and he wrote, the Bible's words point unerrily to Christ, who works on the cross, was ordained by God, the true author of the Bible, before the world began. And all of this book points us to the cross, points us to the Savior, points us to the one who was to come. My, what a marvelous book. You think of the prophecies of the book. You think of the way that things have been foretold. Daniel foretold right down to the very year and beyond when the Lord Jesus Christ would die on the cross hundreds of years before. You think of how when the 70 years captivity came to an end, that was foretold. That right down to the year when it would happen. And not only did it do that, but the Bible told the name of the very king who would set the people free. They said it was Cyrus many years before. How how do they do that? No other book does that. No other holy book even claims to do that. And yet the Bible does that with unerring accuracy. You can see even the things unfolding in the world today. You can see the way that all of these things are unfolding in the Word of God. Not only that, but the Bible provides the answer to the guilt of sin. You think of how the Bible is so remarkably clear on the fundamental problem that man has said. Be it known unto you, therefore, Paul says, men and brethren, that through this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sin, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. Again, writing to Timothy, he says, "Is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Again, writing to the Romans, therefore being justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the atonement. And again, there's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. There's the answer. There's the answer to the fundamental need. There's the answer to the problems of society. It is Christ. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear friend, I say to you, if you're not relying on, on this Christ, on this Bible, then your rock's not my rock. I'm glad that your rock's not my rock. I'm glad that I have the capital rock, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is our Redeemer and our Savior. But not only do I want you to see the reality of our rock, but I want you to think about the righteousness of our rock. The Lord Jesus Christ is the righteous one. First John 2 and 1 says, And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And when we look at uh, men today, what men are putting their trust in today, we realize that what it is is only an excuse for unrighteousness. What is the motive that really makes people reject the Lord Jesus Christ and reject this book? When, when you look really with, with unblemished eyes and with unclouded eyes, when you look at this world, you can see that everything is designed and everything comes together. Well, the Bible says the carnal mind is enmity against God and is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And that's the fundamental problem. That was the problem in the days of Moses. Why? They knew that they needed to worship a God. Why get another God? Because they wanted a God that was fashioned after their own mind. Isn't that what man has always done? Oh, I don't believe in your God because your God does this and your God does... Well, it's the God of revelation. It's the living and the true God. And whether you like God or not, he is still the same living and true God. And what you need to do is bow your knee before this God. And people come up with gods of their own devising. And what do they want? Well, in the days of Moses, these heathen people, they had gods of uh, sexual immorality. They were, there were uh, temple prostitutes. They wanted gods who would be gods of conquest and gods of war and gods that would feed into their own lusts. And you know why I've heard interviews with college students in America and sometimes they have come to admit why it is that they've turned away from God. Maybe they've been brought up in a Christian home. Maybe in their younger day, even they may have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they turn away from God, and people have got to the bottom of the problem. And they said to them directly, I know the reason why you're an atheist. And the reason why you're is an atheist is that you want to commit sexual immorality. That's why you are. And some of them have admitted it. And that's the reason why people, they want to do their own thing. They want to rebel against God, turn their backs upon God and all of the rest of it. And they wanted to do it because they want to do their own thing. Well, you can do your own thing, dear friend. But you will not be accepted of God. And your sin is going to bring you down into a lost, undone eternity. But my rock, not only is a righteous rock, but my rock is able to give me righteousness. My rock is able to be, provide me with the righteousness I need. You see, the Ten Commandments stand against me. The Ten Commandments are those that are my lawmaster to bring me to Christ because I know that I do not keep the law. The Bible says that uh, the Gentiles even know in their hearts that there is a law. And you know, you know that too. You know the law. You know that there are things that you shouldn't do. That's why guilt 
and conviction comes into your heart because there are things that you know that you do not and should not do. There may be things that you want to do, but the Bible says in Romans 2 and 14, for when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. What does that mean? The law is written in their hearts. You see, right from the creation, God has put a law in our hearts. I think I've said before, I'm pretty sure I've said before, that in the Nuremberg trials after the Second World War, many of the Nazis, they claimed that they were doing what they did because they were following orders. They were following the law of the land. And they, they, uh, lo- the lawyers and the judges said, no, that's not a defense. There's a law that is higher than the law of the land. What is that law? It's God's law. We know that it's wrong to rape and murder. We, we know that it is wrong to go and mistreat a little child or someone that has, uh, is vulnerable. We, we know that those things are wrong. There may be things that people debate over, but there are certain fundamental things that people know are wrong. And dear friend, where does that come out of? It comes from God. You see, if there is no God, then everybody can do that which is right in their own eyes. Everybody can decide what is their own morality and who's to say what is right and what is wrong. And you know, without God, everything is permissible. Who, who's to say? Why, 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 can somebody, why can an atheist come to me and say that such and such is immoral? Because they have no standard of morality. They have no standard of right and wrong. But the fact that there is a standard of right and wrong, there is a standard, means that there must be a standard giver. There has to be a law giver. And that's how we know that there is a God. But my God not only has a standard of righteousness, but he gives me that righteousness in the Lord Jesus Christ. You think of the Lord Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Be ye therefore perfect, even as my Father which is in heaven is perfect. And my response to that and yours, I'm sure, is I'm not perfect. So how can I be that I'm absolutely at a loss? And we are at a loss because we are sinners in the sight of a holy God. The Lord comes and he says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength and thy neighbor as thyself. And people, being man-centered, they remember the second part, love thy neighbor as thyself. But they don't even keep that. They don't even keep that. But you certainly don't love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. But that's the standard by which you're going to be judged. That's the standard that's going, God's going to put you at the end of day. And we recognize that, as the Bible says, our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So how am I going to stand before God? Well, I've got to have an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is not my own. And we are justified by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The righteousness of God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? 
that you and I can have the righteousness of God and stand before God completely justified. So my rock is a rock of righteousness. Your rock is a rock of unrighteousness, a rock of immorality and sin and iniquity. But then I want you to think something else here, not only the reality of the rock here and something of the righteousness of our rock, but I want you to think about the result of our rock. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a a better rock, and we think of the result. Our rock becomes a real solid foundation. And I want you to think about the difference between the foundation that the rock provides. We think of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Sermon on the Mount. And you remember how he spoke about the two men who went to make two houses, and one built upon the rock and the other built upon the sand. And you remember, of course, when the tides and the floods came to the rock that, or the house that was built on the sand, it was swept away. And we think about many false professors and backsliders today who want to found themselves and they want to stand upon a shaky foundation. But dear friend, tonight what you need is the firm foundation of God's precious word. And you think about how the, the real reality of salvation brings about a change and a transformation in the life. Do you know there are many professors of religion in this day and generation? But what we need is the reality. What we need is something real. And that's what Moses was saying to these people. Your rock is not a real rock. Your your rock is not something that's going to result in anything. But our rock is one that's going to make a difference. There's going to be a transformation in the life and in the heart. And dear friend, when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, he brings about a transformation. He brings about a change in our character. You know, you think about the person who's come to Christ, and you know there's an improvement. There, there is something that takes, there's an improvement in the moral character. And there's those that have tried to live for Christ and are being false professors And they've gone out into the world. And you generally find when those people who are false professors go out into the world, their moral character suffers. They try to make a a profession of real Christianity. But it doesn't last. The only real Christianity will make a real difference. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. And dear friend, there is a difference in the transformation that is wrought by the gospel. But there's another difference. There's a difference in the satisfaction. You remember in the wilderness how that the Lord gave the children of Israel a rock. And out of the rock there came a flowing crimson flow of water. And we have seen pictures probably of that rock. It's still sitting there, split. And the, uh, the uh, evidence of uh, water erosion in the middle of a desert, water erosion 
in the middle of a desert. That still sits there in Saudi Arabia at the minute. So out of the rock, there came the satisfying water in the midst of the desert. And you think of how the Lord still sends satisfaction to his people. The Bible says that happy is that people whose God is the Lord. You know, these people here, they'd relied upon these false rocks and these false idols, and they'd got nowhere. They thought that these idols could protect them or that these idols could provide for them, but they couldn't provide for them, and they couldn't protect them, and they were not happy. They had thought that they would find happiness and peace and satisfaction in all of these idols, but they had found none. But true Christianity allows the man or the woman to reach their full potential. Sin brings us down, but the Lord Jesus Christ lifts us up. And dear friend, in the midst of even the difficulties of life, maybe a loss of health or maybe you've come in hard times, and dear friend, in the midst of that, there's been hard times and maybe at times you've wondered where the Lord is. But they we're able to say, with the word of God, what I do, thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. And we thank God that the word of God is able to smooth the smitten heart. You think of the Scottish philosopher, David Hume. He was a mighty man of God. He was a skeptic in his day. He was a skeptic against the word of God. He was a denier of miracles. But when his mother came to die, and his mother he had taught in all of these things, she looked up to him from her deathbed and she said, My son, you've taken away my religion, and now will you tell me something to comfort me? But he had nothing to comfort her with. There was no satisfaction in the hour of her death. But I think about a pastor who went to a woman, and he came to this woman in his congregation, and she was near the end. And he, she grasped the hand of the pastor, and the pastor said to her, he said, um, she said to the pastor, I'm in great pain, but I'm happy. I'm happy. That's the difference. That's the difference. You think of Paul who could say, for to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Or let we think of the declaration in Numbers 23 and 10, let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. I think of the death of Edward Payson, the American congregational preacher. His works are still published to this day. But as he sunk down in the arms of death, he said, I'm going to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. I swim in a river of pleasure. I swim in a flood of glory. Oh, what a wonderful thing to know that we have satisfaction to the end and right into eternity. You've often heard about Voltaire, the French writer and philosopher, a deist, who had an exist, a belief in an existence of a supreme being. 
but who opposed Christian beliefs fiercely. And he taught many people, and on his deathbed he relented. And he wanted to get right with God. And when his friends heard that he wanted to get right with God, they came to draw around him and persuade him not to do any such thing. And he raised up his fist and cursed them to their faces. He said, Be gone, he said. It is you that have brought me to this condition. And at times he cried out to God, O Christ Jesus, I must die abandoned by God and men. You've heard, I'm sure, that his nurse, however, afterwards was scarred by what she saw. They actually shut the doors and barred the doors lest anybody should go into the horror of that place. Oh, dear friend, doesn't satisfy. Doesn't meet the need. And dear friend, at the end of the day, these things do not meet your need. Your rock is not my rock. But my rock is willing to receive you. You can come and stand on my rock. You can find forgiveness from my rock. You can find righteousness from my rock. And here is this, the uh, writer here. He says, for their rock is not our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. And dear friend, at the end of the day, every enemy is going to say, he's going to bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why not do it right now? Our God is real. Our rock is the mighty rock and foundation of all of our lives. And if you will come, you can find, find that foundation and that refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just bow in a word of prayer. Our loving God and our gracious Father, we do thank Thee for Thy precious word to our hearts. We've been reminded of the difference between the world's rock and God's rock, and we thank Thee that there is reception by our rock. We're glad that we can come and stand on our rock, that there's room on our rock, and Lord, we thank Thee that men and women can find true refuge and satisfaction on the rock of God. Bless thy word, write it upon hearts, and draw us nigh to thee. For it's in Jesus' precious name that we'd ask these things. Amen. And if God has spoken to you tonight, don't go away without the Savior, but trust in the mighty rock of God tonight and find your foundation there. 569 is our closing hymn. We'll sing a few verses of the hymn. Uh, o safe to the rock that is higher than I, my soul in its conflicts and sorrow would fly. And we'll sing the first and the last verses of 569.
loving God and our gracious Father, we thank thee we can hide in the rock Christ Jesus. And we pray that men, women, might find that refuge this evening. Bless us now. Take us to homes in safety. Watch over us and be with us. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit rest and abide with thy people both now and in the incoming days. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. <laughs>